Is technology terminating relationships in schools? No, thank you for coming to my talk. Who's the next one? No? Okay, no, I can't get away with it that way. Kia ora koto and welcome to 2019's Raising the Bar. Woohoo! Right, I just want to say thank you to everyone who continues to attend those kind of events because without you guys, events like this actually won't happen. So please continue supporting events where academics just leave the offices for a couple of hours and talk. Um, I'm notorious for staying in my office too late. Actually, a lot of my friends come around 7 or 8 p.m. and lure me out of my office with chicken nuggets from, from the office door right through to the car park, and that usually, usually works with me. But tonight, I made it here, and as the famous phrase goes, if the mountain won't come to Muhammad, then Muhammad must come to the vodka room. <laughs> And I hope no one is offended, because if you are, you came to see Muhammad in the vodka room. And so I hope you see the, the, the irony, but just don't tell mum, just don't tell mum. I want to do a quick special shout out to my friends and colleagues who are here today. Um, they're basically here to take photos to mock me later on Facebook, um, which is quite ironic given my title about technology and relationships. So, so thanks guys for coming today. Um, Disclaimers. This talk is about human relationships and technology with a specific focus on educational settings. So if you came here wanting relationship advice, I'm afraid I am not the one. As my friends continue to remind me, Mohammed, you're single, you can't even give that kind of advice. If you came here today wanting to know how to break up with a partner who uses technology all the time, this is also not the talk for it. Although if you came here tonight wanting to know more about that, it's probably a sign. If you're here wanting to know whether you should buy your child an iPhone, a tablet, a Samsung, also this is not the talk for it. Instead, what I'm going to do is that in the first 10 minutes of this talk, I'm going to try to just focus on human relationships, school or classroom relationships in particular. I'm going to talk about the value and importance of human connection. And later on, I'm going to move and talk about the digital age and technology in particular and try to create some sort of a balanced conversation about the pros and the cons. So... What does a healthy, positive, and a supportive human relationship look like? How do you know that you formed a friendship or a relationship with someone, whether it's a colleague or a friend, or if it's one of your students or one of your teachers? Do relationships actually matter? And if that's the case, how do we start establishing more and more of those in classroom settings and hopefully beyond? And in the digital age, where people now act, react, and interact differently, both online and offline, and in fact, we interact online nowadays more than ever before, how is a, me a relationship measured, sustained, and maintained over time? Is it based on how many or how often do you talk to someone every morning or every evening online versus offline? Is it the amount of memes, gifts, and funny videos that you share with your friends, whether you're in the toilet or in the kitchen or before bedtime? Yes, I said it. Or is it the quality of the interaction with someone that you're talking to online most of the time, including what you share and how you share it, in a way that preserves your ego and preserves your feelings? Because don't forget, on the internet, you can pretty much be anyone you like. I look at human relationships from a dual and a social psychological perspective. What it did for you and what it meant for me. 
what kind of processes took place and how I internalized them, how it sounded to me and how it resonated with you, what was initiated by me and what was received and sometimes reciprocated by you. Indeed, relationships have been a focal point in various societies and discussions around various societies since the beginning of time. Whether we're talking about relationships for economic reasons, romantic voyages, educational reasons, or simply in the professional work environment. I'm going to argue today that there are some fundamental underlying truths behind human connections and relationships that bring us all together. And I'm going to talk about how human connections are beneficial to our productivity, prosperity, and success across domains, across education levels, and across contexts. But let me first start by bringing it back to the classroom with a simple activity. I'm going to try to get you guys to talk a little bit to me, right? Yes, we're going to do this teacher thing. I'm going to ask a question, and you're going to respond. Right. I want you to think of two people, but then let's start with the first one. I want you to look back at your schooling years or university years. I want you to think back to that best, best, best teacher you've ever had. I don't know which year level or which class. That one teacher you admired, you cherished, you, you, you considered to be that one teacher who made it worth it for you to cross the miles and make it to class every day. I want you to think about those people. Who were they and what did they do? And what did they mean to you? If I were to ask you to describe that person for me, using adjectives, can you throw out a couple of the key words that you can think of if, I can, if, if I'm saying best teacher? Generous, Generous awesome, lovely, lovely. approachable, inspiring, Fa fashionable or passionate? Because <laughs> I'm willing to win this today, okay? <laughs> passionate, approachable, that's interesting. One more? Real. I love that. I love that. Real. Interested. Um, engaging. engaging. Caring. Caring. All right, that's about it. Okay, okay. <laughs> it's about me, you guys. It's about me. Okay. Um, a lot of people um, think about how the teacher um, talks in the class, what they wore sometimes, what they did, how they laughed. Perhaps that one sweater that they never changed as well, although you kind of hope that they wash it from time to time. But anyway, hold on to those thoughts for a little bit. Now, let's go to the other extreme. I want you to think of that one horrible, horrible teacher that you have. I love that. The one teacher that you would consider in your eyes to be that worst teacher that you've ever had. Someone you would have perceived to be a dreadful person. You don't want to be in their class. You could not stand it when they breathe in front of you. Like, look at him taking space in my area. It's that kind of teacher. Can you think of some of the key words that you would use to describe that? I miss that. Cold. Dehumanizing. Damn, you guys are digging deep. Judgmental, boring, confusing, monotone. I love that. And I am now going to change my voice so you don't think I am monotone. Thank you. Right. In my years of research and teaching at the university and in my research with little kids, whether it was in primary, intermediate, or secondary, I often ask those two questions because they form the basis for my investigations about learning environments, what makes certain learning environments more productive, effective, warm, and inclusive than others. And I also use those ideas to better understand how do people form ideas about someone they care about and they don't. 
Now, I often ask those questions to a lot of people. And in fact, when, when I bump into my students in the supermarket and other places and they say, oh, you were my lecturer in my first year. It's one of the things that I ask them, what do you remember from my classes? And that's often an interesting one because consistently and consistent with the previous research in this area, people are, more likely, are less likely to remember what you taught them and more likely to remember how you made them feel. And I thought that was very, very interesting. Oh, his passion was infectious, and he was always there when I needed him, said Johnny. Whether it was about schoolwork or anything else, he was always around. Johnny was talking about his secondary school teacher seven years later. Every week, we knew exactly what we were learning in the class and about what. We weren't at all worried about anything else with her. I remember feeling so safe to express my thoughts. It was a non-judgment zone. I felt really good being in her class, said Jessie, talking about her primary school teacher 10 years later. Who knew that maths could be so much fun? He was actually the reason I did physics major at uni, you know. I actually really liked him. I wonder if he's still teaching. I hope he is, said Hemi about his year eight maths teacher eight years later, and he's currently studying with us at the university. And I've got this random quote here about someone who was talking about me, and they said, OMG, Muhammad is handsome and funny, and he should totally get promoted, and raising the bar should pay him for this talk. Sorry, it's a quote, you guys. Sorry. But, but jokes aside, and needless to say, we're finding that educational experiences that are characterized or lead to success are ones that are often created by teachers who, one, understand the value and importance of human connections in their classroom, Two, they keep the learning quite exciting, relevant, and interesting to their students. It's the kind of learning where teachers themselves are interested in the process, similar to what you guys have said. And they consistently communicate high academic expectations for their students, expectations that are realistic relative to student achievement, yet challenging enough for them to not get bored in those classes. And unsurprisingly, it's those kind of teachers that Jesse Hemi and others have kept talking to us about when we asked them to think back to that best or most effective teacher and some of those critical incidents that have led them to becoming who they are today. So I'm kind of not surprised. But of course, different kinds of relationships have different kinds of influences over a child's life trajectory. For example, we're finding that positive relationships with teachers often predict scholastic achievement and learning progress. In other words, relationships come with trust, or at least they help students trust one another and trust teachers. Trust leads to openness and vulnerability. Vulnerability and openness leads to students reaching out and asking for help if and when they need it. They ask questions and they want more feedback. They ask for clarification. They seek support. And in other words, there's more learning time as a result of being engaged in the process and less disruption time happening in those classes, which hopefully translates to higher achievement gains over time. We're also finding that positive relationships with students, so friendships from the classroom, they predict resilience, a range of self-beliefs such as grit, self-efficacy, as well as attendance, whereas positive relationship, relationships between a child and their family predict school involvement, school engagement, self-esteem, as well as attendance. 
So to me, it was therefore never a surprise that the closer the relationship between the home environment and the school environment was, the better outcomes were for those, for those children who were involved in this kind of project. But do relationships therefore look the same? Well, of course not. Relationships would look differently with respect to the age and the stage of the students and the adults that we're talking about. To teenagers and young adults, we're, hi Jan, we're finding that relationships, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we work together and I just assumed this work. Sorry, Jan. <laughs> She'll never be late again. <laughs> nah, love you, love you. We're fine. <laughs> Filling my serious face here. Okay, so to teenagers and young adults, we're finding that they're telling us that they enjoy relationships that are underpinned by a great deal of independence and autonomy. They tell us, I really love it if a teacher comes to me, tells me exactly what I need to do, gives me the great amount of feedback and let me go. I want to excel, I want to achieve, I want to perform. Um, those teachers are the ones who also communicate a great deal of utility and intrinsic value. They tell you exactly why you're learning this piece of information, how important, how relevant, and how useful it is, because they do that whole cost-benefit analysis in their head in order to engage with you. But also, there's a great deal of future-oriented and thought-provoking kind of conversations happens between those students and their teachers who they say that they care about at the end of the day. Secondary-age students often tell us, I like it when a teacher makes me think about something dif completely different. I like it when they provoke my thinking, or perhaps I've got this interesting challenge, but they shed the light on it from different angles and perspectives. That's the kind of teacher I want to be with. To younger kids, we're finding that students appreciate and also like teachers who do the smallest things in their eyes, in our eyes at least, but they're quite big in theirs. It's things such as sharing food, playing games with students, asking little kids about the day, helping them with homework, and cheering them up when they're sad. It's some of those things, some of those things where our own students at a primary age have told us that my teacher cares about me, I have a good relationship with my teacher because of things like this. The irony, personally for me, is that at the same time where researchers, educators, and school practitioners are out there looking for the next big thing, the next big thing, the most complex thing, the most complex solution to raise the achievement of our children, it actually is the little tiniest things that we often forget to do in the classroom with our kids that make the greatest impact in terms of their um, scholastic achievement. And at the end of the day, any multi-million dollar investment as a result of that goes to waste. So relationships are key. Relationships are important. Can we teach people how to establish relationships? Often there's this talk among researchers, educators, and practitioners and parents how it's important to have good relationships, full stop. You need to have good relationships with your students, full stop. You need to have positive relations with your students, dot, dot, dot. But no one actually tells you how, and no one actually gives you the concrete little skills and strategies, which is something that is currently missing in order for you to carry out positive relationships with your students, which is something that we're trying to do at the moment. For us at the university, at least with the research team that I'm involved in, for us establishing relationships starts with equipping people with explicit skills and strategies that are likely to be seen in the eyes of our students as ones that are supportive of their development. It's how they can tell that we care about them and about their success. 
And it starts with simple little things that we can actually teach our teachers and parents and others to engage or do more of. And it's things like asking consistently, how are you? How's your day going? Is anything new happening? It's things such as celebrating success when your child, friend, or colleague does a great job, even if they say they don't want to. Giving feedback that's tri-dimensional, that tells students where they are, where they need to be, and also how to get there. Telling a child they got 60 out of 100 tells them where they're at, they're 60 points. It also tells them where they need to be because they're 40 points away, but it actually doesn't tell them how to progress from one grade to another. And it's also things such as acknowledging and responding to student attitudes and feelings, but it's also other important skills that all adults should understand and have, such as listening to understand as opposed to listening to respond. One is about you and one is about them. And there are other ra a range of other explicit skills that we're trying to teach more of to our teachers to start thinking of how do I foster a collaborative community in my classroom that is underpinned by positive relationships. But given this, and therefore, relationships matter, irrespective of how they look like in different contexts, irrespective of who runs them and with who you're talking to. One of the innovative approaches that we're currently doing is this project that I'm involved in, and it's based up in Northland, Whangarei, and it's called I Have a Dream. We know that positive relationships with a teacher and a student are important, with a student and another, and a student and a parent. So what we're trying to do at the moment is to investigate how powerful the relationship is between one student and a mentor that we're going to assign to those kids. The idea is very straightforward. We've got about 700 students in the project, and we've assigned each of those students a mentor and knowledgeable significant other. And the idea is that that mentor will stay, with, also known as a navigator, will stay with the same kids from primary to intermediate to secondary and to tertiary if that's what they want. We're asking a very basic yet complex question. Would that kind of relationship help students navigate a world that is in fact grey? Would that kind of relationship add to the purpose of learning for those students? And to what extent can we help students achieve whatever they want to achieve if we provide them with the opportunity and if we instill the belief that with, ha with hard work comes great success? This is the third year of this partnership between us and a number of charitable trusts up north. And so far, the kids are doing really, really well, and we're quite proud about that. And just to shamelessly advertise, it's ihaveadream.org.nz. So, we talked about relationships. Has technology changed any of that? For me, that's big. There's been a lot of talk in schools and the media and by politicians about the place of technology in schools and its role in enhancing the relevance and the employability of students, if we were to use capitalist and neoliberal terms, um, by students by the time that they graduate. But before we get there, I'd like to point out this little interesting observation. I want to say that it's always interesting that the education sector is the playground for politicians and governments when it comes to trying new innovations, new approaches that may or may not be a waste of time, money and resources. But I suppose one of the challenges is that everyone relates to education. 
everyone has had at least 10 to 12 years of experience being a student. You've all been someone's student. You've all been in someone's class. You've had a good understanding of how you learned and how you were taught. And that helped you form ideas about how perhaps people should and could and would learn. But that gives others the impression that therefore they know how to run a school. But picture this. Picture this. Instead of going to the hospital tomorrow, you're not really dying or anything, you just want to talk to a GP about something. Instead of going to the hospital, imagine accessing an online hospital with online doctor consultations. Imagine paying for a Skype meeting with one of your lawyers rather than seeing them in person. Imagine, instead of going on an OE, an overseas experience for a whole year, you sit at home and you put some virtual reality tool and you sit on YouTube and you watch videos about all the places that you could go to. <laughs> Lastly, since teachers have a minimum of 30 kids in their classes, nowadays we've got modern learning environments, they tear the walls down, which means you've got up to 100 kids in one class. Um, imagine nurses, lawyers, engineers and others having to deal with 70 clients in one hour. I'm glad that you're giggling. You'd think that that actually works because, because in teaching and in education, we're, teaching, we're dealing with little kids. We're teaching kids who have specific and sometimes special needs, learning needs and support. Whereas other professionals got adults. You'd think that function much better than little kids. So to me, that kind of works. I mean, why is it that people are more likely to attend yoga classes in person rather than pay for much cheaper videos and watch them from home? Minus the germs, minus the sweatiness, it's your own carpet, you can do it however you like, clothes on or off. <laughs> don't, don't, please don't repeat that. Do not repeat that. I give my students those kind of dilemmas and scenarios in my classes, and I give them to imagine a world that is fully virtual, whether it's about a classroom, a hospital, a military ward, and you name it. And I try to get them to think about would it work and would it not work. Interestingly, every time I pose that to students or members of the public, every single pers person tells me the same thing, but it's in their own unique way. It's not the same, Mohammed. We're not there yet but somehow we're there yet with education. Now, I must confess that I'm not pro-technology, but I'm also not against it. Every time someone tries to corner me and say, Muhammad, are you with technology or against technology? I go, yes. <laughs> I hate being boxed in that way. Instead, I try to provoke people to have critical and balanced conversations about the intended and unintended consequences both positive and negative, because everything got to have its pros and cons, and you just have to be quite critical about what it adds and what it takes away. Technology has transformed education in so many ways that we can no longer keep up with it, and those are just some of the main insights. One, with technology came the introduction of blended and online learning environments. That is, instead of attending a 12-week course fully face-to-face, -face, now you get the chance of doing a combination, four or five face-to-face, -face, four or five online, or do fully online environments where you don't need to be in a physical space with other colleagues or with your, with your teacher. Which means what used to take place typically within the physical borders of a classroom no longer needs to, whether that's the actual instruction, the homework, or the kind of learning that you need to. That also means that students can now learn from anywhere they like, PJs or no PJs, don't repeat that, however they like, with whoever they want, at whatever time. 
It also means that with few buttons, with a couple of insights here and there, students can know exactly what's happening on the other side of the world once an event takes place or once it unfolds. 60 or 7 years ago, it would have taken a good day or two, now it's a minute or two. Teachers can now communicate with parents and set homework online for their students. Now they can report to the on, um, on students' progress to those parents online, and some schools actually email their students with progress reports from time to time. And that changes really what takes place also within a school setting and not just within a classroom setting. But also, students are forming relationships with other people all around the world. They don't need to be in the same neighborhood anymore, in the same town anymore. And if someone goes away, they can still maintain the essence of that kind of relationship. Interestingly, we've done a lot of comparisons looking at how students perceive relationships if they're conducted face-to-face -face most of the time or online most of the time. And we're finding that students are reporting the same levels of perceived emotional closeness and intensity of that relationship, whether it was frequently done online or offline. In other words, a breakup will come across as a breakup, whether it's face-to-face -face or online. The intensity of the conversations, the gossip has the same flavor or the feeling in it, whether it's online and offline. The emotional reactions that you, that, that you take place when you're talking to someone in person, they're reporting quite similar levels of those kind of emotional reactions online as well. In other words, irrespective of the platform to students, a relationship is a relationship. So the potential is great, but picture this. I've got four kids walking into the classroom. They're four high-achieving students. Sylvia is a high-achieving student. She doesn't have a lot of students in the class, so she tends to be quiet and shy and keeps to herself. Sylvia, therefore, relies on technology as an escape, and she uses it as an enrichment tool. She often says that her teacher gets bored and they don't know what to do with her. She's one of those gifted and talented students. Anything you give her, she gets it done like this. And so what the teacher does is they give her the iPad or the technology in front of her just to keep her busy, because by the time she's done, someone else will come and look after her. Think of Megan, she's another student. She's a brilliant kid in the class, but she doesn't have internet access at home. So while everyone goes home and the teacher gives them extra homework and extra readings to do, Megan comes to class 30 to 40 minutes ahead just to catch up on the things that the kids have been doing at home. As a result of that, Megan has been spending her time catching up, and a lot of time she feels like she can't keep up. Omkar is another high-achieving student. He walks into the class. Despite being a Generation Z student, Omkar has no interest in using technology. He'd rather be outdoors doing something else without technology. He wants to do something with his hands. He asked the teacher to do so. The teacher refused and said, nope, this is a technology class, a technology session. Everyone is going to do it irrespective. So the teacher ignored him. So he decides to disrupt and distract all of his students in the class who are trying to get on with the, with the class activities. Camilla is our fourth student. She's a high-achieving student as well. But her teacher says she suffers from social anxiety. And so the teacher recommended that she keeps to herself and she sticks to her corner with her Chromebook. Whenever she feels comfortable, she can go and says hi to other people around her. But otherwise, we will leave her to her own devices. Seven months later, Camilla can't even name two people in the classroom who care about her. 
four real scenarios, but I changed the name, so we gotta protect the identity of our participants. And they're actually people here. Hi. <laughs> and by the way, those are just four students out of 30. And those are four high-achieving students. We often say that the high-achieving students are high flyers. We don't worry as much about them. Imagine if I introduced similar cases but with struggling learners in the class or those perhaps with learning disorders or disabilities in the classroom who require a significant amount of attention. Um, imagine if the teacher doesn't have a good handle on technology and how to use it. So I really want to point out that using those real-life scenarios is consistent with what we're finding both at a national and an international level in terms of using technology in the classroom. One, introducing technology for the sake of technology does not make a difference to students' achievement. There's been a lot of studies that looked at the impact of simply introducing Chromebooks and um, Google Classes and iPads and all these other things, and they tried to measure achievement before and after that kind of school-wide intervention. They found that achievement didn't change. They've looked at other types of intervention where different kinds of technologies and learning management systems were introduced in other kinds of classes, and they found the same. In another range of studies where technology did make a difference, there was one significant change, one important mediator between the connection of or between the technology and outcomes, and that was the teacher. And a lot of the studies where they found that technology actually did make a difference, they also found that teachers in those classrooms, one, believed in the efficacy and the importance of using technology in the classroom. Two, they were trained to use the technology in a way that complement what they do in the classroom, not substitute it. And those were two main differences between studies that found differences and those who weren't. So really, we need to invest more in our teachers to invest in the, in, in the future of our children. And that's kind of one takeaway message behind it. Without teachers, without a pedagogical rationale, it is therefore well established that technology is likely to have zero to minimal effect, or at least an effect that any other intervention would have caused. So... Invest in us for you, that's what I'm saying. One unintended consequence that we're slowly consolidating in the literature nowadays is the increasing pressure and anxiety that younger students are currently reporting. Specifically, though, high levels of anxiety and pressure with the secondary students and the tertiary students. To me, that makes sense because with our secondary students, there's a great emphasis on NCA and figure out where you want to go. Is it time for trades? Is it time for a vocational pathway? Is it time for university, scholarships, so on and so forth? And for our tertiary students, it's a of, uh-oh, student loan is creeping up, how am I, I going to get a job, how am I going to pay my dues kind of thing. And so we're finding more and more of students reporting to us that they feel quite the pressure, or at times the workload plus other work commitments is hard for them to manage. We're also finding that students who spend a substantial amount of time online are also the ones who report significant, amount, um, significant levels of anxiety, as isolation issues, as well as problems fitting in when having to deal with different social situations in person. In other words, students are becoming more and more comfortable with being digital natives, living in the digital world, operating in a digital system that is sometimes anonymous, that separates them from their immediate surroundings at the expense of developing that sense of fear and anxiety that comes as a result of stepping off that digital world, which is an interesting and a worrying finding. 
This increased sense of pressure and anxiety is also not just due to spending a lot of time online. Um, this could also be attributed to a number of things, but one of them is information technology and how much information is now being provided to our students both online and offline. I'm one of those people who argue that we have now moved away from the information age and more towards the information overload age. I'm willing to bet that every millennial and Gen Z kid in this room knows what I mean when I say information overload. There's so much to think of, there's so much to plan for. With a click of button these days, whether you're a student, a youngster, or an adult, it actually doesn't matter. With a click of a button, you are bombarded with 101 pages that come across as relevant, that come across as engaging, that come across as things that you need to know. The second you make a purchase online, you somehow subscribe to one million and one other newsletters that you get spammed with, and all of the subjects are the same. You will not believe the bargain that you're going to get today. You will not believe what happened on this side of the world. You will not believe who died. You will not believe those 10 new ideas that you need to consider. There are five new causes for you to join. And it's getting to the point where our students are feeling it. And it's getting to the point where our students are getting the idea or the attitude that if you don't contribute to those kind of conversations, you're not enough or you're not doing enough to be considered in that kind of digital world. In other words, they're bombarded with these options where they can no longer choose because of fear of missing out. And I actually wonder whether now is it, are we moving from the fear of missing out and more into the fear of joining in because of how many choices those students are having. There's always something else worth pursuing and there are always more things that are worth knowing about. But one interesting result as a, as a kind of as a case of this is how students reacted to it over time. We are getting students who are becoming more and more selfish, not it's not necessarily a bad word, but also selective and strategic about what to learn, how to learn it, and how much time to invest learning it. We see it especially at a university level where students come to you and they're quite strategic from week one. I've got four courses, four, three, uh, four or five different lectures. I've got those 10 assignments due. This is worth 50%. This is worth 10%. I'm going to put more effort in this, which means I'm going to skip that class. Uh-oh, I've got work commitment, and I've got those three commitments. I need to figure out in what way can I perform in a way that doesn't make me come across as a failure across all, but it means I'm not going to put in 100% in all of them. And students engage in a process of decision-making all the time, but it's getting more and more intense as more variables are entered in that kind of equation. In other words, students nowadays got to be convinced why they're learning certain information, why they attend certain classes or events, how will that benefit them more than the other 101 commitments or opportunities they can subscribe to. We have actually have never had this problem before in any education system in the world where we had to sell the idea of learning to our students. Now we're trying to promote not just learning well, but just to get into the learning process, to learn something different for the, for the sake of growth and growth only, knowledge building, if you want to think about it this way. Coupled with that is the frustration and the backlash that our poor teachers are now slowly receiving when they ask their students to Google it. As technology first emerged and began quite, began quite um, being quite popular for our schools, our teachers thought, aha, I'm sharing the workload with my students. Thank God I don't need to learn everything. If I challenge them, I can get them to Google it, and off they go. 
However, increasingly now, students are learning the hard way that you can't trust everything online and that just because it's a page that's published online doesn't make it, make it quality, doesn't make it credible, doesn't make it trustworthy and doesn't make it correct however you define that. It's almost ironic, therefore, how technology, as it became more and more available for students to use, the pressure actually got back for teachers to help students navigate it. In a way, technology changed our roles as teachers from being facilitators or instructors of knowledge and learning to guides and navigators and information organizers for our students. Students are now looking up to us and say, Yep, you're telling me that this is important, but guess what? So are those 500 things that I just found on Google. You have five minutes, go. <laughs> they will not articulate that for you, but sometimes you see it in someone's face. So students are also becoming much more strategic when it comes to when to shut down, when to absorb, absorb information, and when, just, when to just nod for the sake of nodding because I just want this conversation to finish. I do not plan to process anything you said. I've got something else coming after. And when do they engage? You see it in their eyes. You see it in students who actively learn every single piece of information to pass a certain test. And all of a sudden, it's almost like they actively try to unlearn it. It's a very fascinating phenomenon. But here's what I also find equally interesting. We are still finding pockets or groups of students here and there who still value face-to-face -face interaction, heading back to the teacher, having that one-on-one -on -one time or just group time to talk through problems, to talk through issues, to bounce ideas back and forth. They value relationships for the sake of relationships, not because they bring something else. Irrespective of how much time those students are spending learning and interacting online. One popular theory is that those people who have transitioned from no technology to full technology growing up are the ones like that. They're the ones who are now able to live bo between both worlds and they switch between them. This is one particular reason why social psychologists and educational psychologists like myself are fascinated by millennials, because a lot of the millennials had to live at least five to ten years with no technology, and at some point, I don't know if you remember this, but Windows 95 kicked in and Windows 98 kicked in. I still remember the hours and hours that I have spent simply playing solitaire I mean, I am very embarrassed to admit it now, but right, so at some point we have chosen to make that choice. And it's interesting because it depends on how the families react to that and the kind of conversation they have with the kids, they've had with the kids at that stage. You've had people who've chosen to go down that path 100%. You've had people who resisted the use of technology. And you've had people who are able to go online and offline whenever they choose to. Isn't it interesting? Am I just geeking out here? Okay, don't worry. It's the nerves, I promise. So, yes, if you're a millennial like me, I think you're pretty cool. So, is that it? Are relationships doomed? Is face-to-face -face contact, hashtag so2003? Are group skills and social skills out the window? Don't we need them? Don't we want people to argue, to reach consensus, to give and take? Isn't it actually what employers want if we were to use that kind of terms? Um, are those things going out the window? We're arguing that not really because it actually depends on us 
And this is exactly how we can step in as teachers, educators, parents, and older uncles and aunties of little nieces and nephews. Perhaps, though, we need to rethink our roles alongside technology, what it adds and what it takes, and whether we can compensate for what is being lost elsewhere. Are we providing our students with the opportunity to practice socializing, interacting in different social settings at the same time where we're offering them with that kind of technology? So if we truly believe that human connection is important and social skills are needed, perhaps we need to find a happy medium between digital technology and immersion and human connections and relationships. Some schools do a fantastic job at the, in that kind of space, i.e. that finding a medium space between face-to-face -face and online. Um, I often go and do some consultations and observations with schools, and one particular school that I'm thinking of was very, very interesting for me because the focus has shifted from just asking the question, do you know how to use technology to help you solve that problem, more to, could you please teach me how you reach that conclusion with technology? Could you please reach Jessica, who's next to you, and try to teach her how you made it and how she can use that? And in that way, now, we're trying to teach more and more of those social skills much more explicitly as part of a bigger kind of agenda, if you want to think about it that way. Um, there's a great emphasis as a result of that on teaching learning strategies and explicitly teaching social skills. We're now encouraging, as a result of that, collaborative work skills more than ever before. In that same school, actually, now that I think about it, one of the things that they used to have was to give to make sure that they've got BYOD, bring your own device, and then everyone in the class would have their own laptop and everything and working on it. But one of the things that they've done differently from last year is that whenever they have group work, they'd make sure they have one device or one laptop per group, and they would assign roles so that this week, this person is in charge of the um, of the laptop, this person is the timekeeper, that person is data analyst, he or she will plan for this, he or she will do this, so on and so forth. And then the next week they assign different people different roles. And in that way, you're forcing them or encouraging them to socialize from time to time and explicitly articulate what they know and how they know it. In other words, it's possible. Again, it's about small and regular changes in instruction that would allow us to retain that happy medium or so, I'd argue. Perhaps introducing technology allowed us to rethink what we teach and how we teach it in different innovative ways. But that doesn't mean we have to lose human connection and experiences in the process. It's actually up to us. At times, teachers, educators, and parents alike get fixated on what we lose rather than what we gain. And that's a function of us being in the so-called critical conscience kind of society, where now the focus is on the black, not the white. What we lose rather than what we gain, half, half empty rather than half full kind of thing. I invite you to critically rethink how technology has shaped your life in the last 10 years, thinking of all the things that wouldn't have been possible without internet or technology, whether it's in education, engineering, or medicine. I then invite you to consider the idea that we are pre preparing our, our, our kids, our children, for a future that we might not be there to witness. It's a harsh truth. 
a future in which technology will change how they act and interact and react in different social settings, not us. But it's not necessarily for the worst. It is up to us to decide whether we value human connection or not and whether we want to keep it alive alongside technology. And so in a way, in response to my question, is technology terminating relationships, technology doesn't terminate anything. It's people who choose to terminate people and its relationships are only terminated if people choose for them to be terminated. Relationships were, are, and will always be integral to any environment, I would argue, online or offline. I want to end by saying this, relationships are important and they're not always important to you, but it could be important for someone else. I want to end with this little exercise. Turn to the person next to you, give them a nice handshake and a big smile quickly, whether you know them or not. Quickly, chop chop. Excellent. Excellent. Handshakes, icebreakers, little conversation starters like this are important for any um, relationship to, to be established between you and another. And even if you don't end up having a relationship with someone you just shook hands with, just remember it might not mean much to you, but it might mean something to them. But, and it is also my hope that in a digital um, world that you will still be able to stand up and have face-to-face -face conversations with people you may disagree with. Thank you very much, and you guys have been wonderful.